My name is Charlie Johnson, and I'm thrilled to welcome all of you to the second episode of Untangled, a podcast on technology, people, and power. The point of the podcast is to dive deeper into the topic I explore in my newsletter. So if you haven't yet signed up, stop everything that you are doing, go to untangled.substack.com and subscribe now. In my latest newsletter, I offered up some unsatisfying solutions for a big fat problem, Facebook. While writing the piece, I knew I wanted to speak with Daphne Keller. Daphne directs the program on platform regulation at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center, lectures at Stanford Law School, and before all of that, she was an associate general counsel at Google. That's deep academic, legal, and private sector expertise, all in a single human. Daphne has thought deeply about the problem of amplification and middleware services as a potential solution. In this conversation, we dive deep into both. Along the way, we also discuss how the private sector and civil society misunderstand one another when it comes to platform governance and regulation. Why everyone hates Section 230 and why regulating speech is so hard. We also discuss why regulating reach is just as hard. Listen all the way to the end to learn the one thing Daphne would tell her teenage self about life. If you like the podcast, please do all the things to make it go viral. Subscribe now, share it, review it, rate it, all the things. Thank you so much to Daphne for joining me and to you, dear listener, for learning alongside me. And now on with the show. Daphne Keller, welcome to Untangled. Thanks for having me. To begin at the beginning, what's your story? How did you come to focus on platform governance? Uh, You want the long version or the short version? (laughs) (laughs) Whichever you'd like to share. Uh, You know what? I'm going to tell you the long version. Um, So, you know, when I was in college, I studied um, media and culture and semiotics and, you know, how power and information intersect and these extremely theoretical things. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I got to law school, I found that um, the law around uh, first intellectual property um, and second governing information on the internet actually related really closely to to these more theoretical questions that I'd I'd been interested in earlier. Um, And so I've been paying attention to internet information law since, I don't know, 1998 or something. Um, and I've you know moved through a series of jobs, the most relevant before Stanford being that I was a lawyer at Google for 10 years. Um, and I was the head of the, the legal division that, that looked after Google web search um, toward the end of my time there. So I spent a lot of time with engineers and product managers and the people who were, um, who were making making the trains run. Um, and then I, I moved to Stanford in 2015 and have been doing academic research on those same sets of issues ever since. I started out at the Center for Internet and Society, which is an explicitly public interest focused institution within the law school. And then since then I moved to the Cyber Policy Center where I sort of am the most legally focused kind of law and public interest focused person. At, at CPC. You've worked in academia, in the private sector. 
How do they misunderstand one another when it comes to issues of platform governance? Um, gosh, there's, there's so much that is miscommunicated, um, in part because the set of questions are so broad, you know, there's, there's nobody who really has eyes on the, on the big, big picture. We all just have our little pieces that we can see. But I think that in academia and civil society, there just aren't very many people who've done the hands-on work of trying to build and run these products or operationalize the rules for content moderation, you know, define what prohibited nudity is, for example, with sufficient precision that a globally distributed workforce can apply it kind of consistently. On the flip side, I think people inside of platforms are seeing the best case scenario of their own product. <laughs> you know, they have the version that was optimized for people like them, educated, prosperous, often American, English speaking, you know, all, all of these things. And people all over the world who are in different situations are, are seeing very different problems um, that can be blind spots for people inside of platforms. The, the thing that really stood out to me about this recently was as part of um, Frances Haugen's disclosures about Facebook, she talked about how for, for non-majority languages or non-major market languages, so, you know, maybe Tamil or Chechen, not only is the content moderation done by humans at risk of being worse because there just aren't as many humans being hired to do it or, you know, th things that everybody's kind of known or suspected all along, but also the machine learning and AI models for doing automated content moderation are also worse because there just aren't, as I understand it, there just aren't big enough data sets to even train up the same tools that are used for English or Spanish or, you know, more widely used languages. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, when people in Tunisia or Sri Lanka, are, you know, are reporting that they're seeing problems, they actually are seeing a substantively different and worse version of Facebook. And I doubt that very many people at Facebook are aware of that. You know, I, I do think there's, there's a big information gap where the platform employees are seeing the best case scenario of their own product for the most part. I don't want to spend too much time on Section 230, but in order to talk about the idea of regulating reach, I think we first have to lay out why regulating speech is so hard. So what is Section 230? Why was it created in the first place? And why does everyone seem to hate it now? <laughs> we could definitely spend the whole time on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Section 230 is one of the three big laws or areas of law that govern platforms responsibility for user speech in the United States. And it gets a lot of the attention right now, but it really is one of three pillars. The other big pillars are first, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act for copyright. And that is this detailed notice and takedown regime that's actually, I think, really important to understand because it shows us a model of what a different, a non-CDA 230 world might look like. And the 
pros and cons of that world. There's a lot to learn from the DMCA. And then the other big pillar that's very widely neglected is federal criminal law. There's no special immunity for platforms from federal criminal claims about things like you know, material support of terrorism or child sexual abuse material, you know, a lot of the sort of worst of the worst content has federal criminal laws on point and there's no immunity from those. So that's, those are the parts that aren't CDA 230. Then CDA 230 provides a very broad immunity for platforms from claims. I think of them as like speech tort type claims, although that's reductive, but claims like defamation or this speech invades my privacy or um, things like that. It also provides platforms with a very broad immunity from a second kind of claim, which is people coming along and saying, hey, you took down my content and you're not allowed to do that. I'm going to force you to reinstate the content. And Section 230 says that platforms actually get broad leeway to take down whatever content they want to. Both of those things, the not being liable for users' illegal speech and having freedom to moderate both legal and illegal speech as they see fit, both of those things might be the rights platforms would have under existing background law anyway, even without 230, or some version of that Mm. might be what would happen without 230. But 230 makes it really concrete and makes it relatively fast and easy as a legal perspective to go out and and establish the immunities. It was actually enacted in response to a couple of lawsuits in the 90s that were among the lawsuits to, to, to test the question of when platforms are responsible for what their users say. And they reached conclusions that Congress decided were were problematic and and needed to be fixed. So one of the cases involved a platform that said, hey, we're going to be family friendly. We have rules. We're going to enforce them. Um, But somebody posted allegedly defamatory content and uh, the person, the, the entity that was defamed sued the platform. And the court said, oh, well, this platform was acting like an editor. Uh, This Mm. platform assumed responsibility for users' content by having editorial policies. Then the other case was a platform that was said kind of anything goes. Uh, We're not going to attempt to moderate this content and take down the bad stuff. It too got sued for defamation. And in that case, the court said, oh, well, you're not responsible. You're just a, a passive conduit for what these users are saying. Um, And the the members of Congress who drafted CDA 230, one of whom is still in Congress, by the way, Senator Ron Wyden, they looked at this and they were like, wait a minute, that is exactly backwards. Like, we want a world where platforms are encouraged to undertake content moderation and where they can try to weed out the bad stuff, where they can choose to have, you know, a platform that is tailored for children and is very PG or a platform that's all about cats and doesn't allow dog pictures or, you know, what, whatever it is they might want to do with their moderation rules, we want them to be encouraged to do that. And so their goal in passing CDA 230 was, you know, both what you could think of as a, like a pro-free speech goal to make mm-hmm. it so that platforms didn't get scared of liability and take down too much and, you know, silence the Me Too movement in its infancy because it might be defamatory, you know, that that kind of thing. But it was also what you might think of as an anti-free speech goal, which is to say, hey, platforms, we want you to go out and moderate content and take some of it down. And so 
why has it become such a political football these days? Why does why does everyone hate it? <laughs> well, uh, the reductive version is Democrats hate it because they want platforms to take down more content, and Republicans hate it because they want platforms to take down less content. I happen to believe that that's not it's not an innately political issue. Like really, almost everyone actually wants some content taken down, including legal content that is nonetheless, you know, offensive or horrific. You know, for example, when the Christchurch shooting happened and that video was circulating, there weren't any Republicans saying, leave it up. <laughs> you know, right. everybody agreed it needed to come down or it should as a moral matter, whatever the law says, as a moral matter, it should come down. And, you know, conversely, there are plenty of, you know, speakers for marginalized groups who are mad at platforms for silencing them and who would like to have a way yep. to compel platforms to reinstate things. So it, it's not innately a left-right issue, I think, but it happens to be playing out that way in DC right now. I mean, one of the things that I think Francis Haugen's um, uh, leaked documents did was sort of shift the frame uh, a little bit away from Section 230 and toward sort of the regulation of reach or of amplification, which perhaps not surprisingly led to a number of calls to regulate reach, regulate the algorithm. What would regulating reach look like in practice? How do you think platforms would respond? What do you think would come of it? So I, I have an article on this, uh, Amplification and Its Discontents, uh, which it's, was published through... I was just going to say, it's great. Uh, <laughs> Thank I, you. I read the entire thing, and it's quite the tome. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's short as legal academic articles. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I started writing that two plus years ago because I was hearing people say we need to regulate reach at every conference I went to. So I feel like... Mm. Francis, who's my old client, by the way, um, Francis's mm -hmm. focus on algorithms has, you know, brought even more attention to it, but it was absolutely part of a brewing regulatory discussion back then. And several, maybe even all of the bills in Congress that are about regulating algorithmic amplification already existed for, before her, her hearings. On the question of, you know, what it would mean to regulate amplification could mean a lot of different things. What I focused on in the article is sort of is three versions. One is saying, hey, there's speech that's already illegal. Platforms, you have immunity when you merely host that speech, but we're going to take away that immunity when your algorithms make it more prominent, you know, when it's pushed to the top of a newsfeed mm -hmm. or YouTube recommendations, that kind of thing. That's, that's the version that's probably most politically plausible in this country. But there's, there's a second version that's uh, more or less being discussed in the UK right now that I think is interesting also it is even less likely to be consistent with the first amendment but th there's a version that <laughs> says hey there's some speech that is only sort of harmful when it's just you know sitting around on a facebook page but becomes much more harmful when it is spread very widely to lots of people you know a 
a, a lie about a politician does more damage if it is spread to more people right before the election or speech that is potentially might incite violence becomes more dangerous when it gets spread to more people. You know, so, so there are these situations where speech that might be legal in one context, there's an argument it should be, that same speech should become illegal when it is amplified too widely. And, and I think that's useful to think about just because it kind of tees up the issue. To me, it tees it up well of like, why are we talking about amplification? You know, what, what, it, what is the new harm that, that comes from that? That said, I think a bill in the U.S. that said, hey, we're going to take a bunch of currently legal speech and make it illegal when it's in recommendations, you know, I, <laughs> I don't think that one would fare too well in court. Um, <laughs> and then the, the, the final model and the one that I find most potentially useful uh, would be to have some kind of content neutral rules about amplification. So instead of Congress coming in and having a top-down rule that says, hey, platforms don't amplify the following kinds of speech, you know, you could instead have a rule that is, that applies to all content equally. Simplistically, you could have something like a, what people call a circuit breaker rule mm -hmm. saying, you know, a post on Twitter can't, you know, be shown to more than X people per hour or an account can't gain followers at a rate of, you know, X percent per hour, you know, something that's a numerical cap like that. I think you can imagine situations where that's useful, like where a dangerous lie is spreading like wildfire. But I also think it would interfere, you know, interfere with the rise of Lil Nas X. It would interfere right. with, uh, you know, activists who are trying to gain attention. You know, it, it would kind of systematically ensure that whoever already has the microphone keeps the microphone <laughs> and that new voices can't suddenly rise to prominence. So I don't know, you know, I, I wouldn't be up in arms advocating against a law like that if it came along, but I, I'm not sure how many problems it solves compared to new problems it might create. What, what I find more interesting is the idea of having solutions that are grounded in user privacy rights or in competition to say, to create a situation where users have more opportunity to opt in to different content ranking systems or different content moderation systems so that no one platform or two or four platforms have such incredible power. You know, we don't care nearly as much about Facebook's uh, newsfeed ranking if there are 25 different newsfeed rankings to choose from or 25 different Facebooks. So, so I think we should be thinking more about how to use areas of law like privacy or competition to achieve these goals, both because I think there may be better solutions there and also because you're less likely to run headlong into First Amendment problems. You and a number of others have proposed the idea of a middleware services solution. What would that look like in practice? What problems would it help solve? Um, so there are a number of different ways it could look in practice. Um, I think Mike Masnick and Corey Doctorow and a lot of other people who are interested in sort of decentralization um, have a, a vision where there could just be lots of different sort of uh, nodes 
of social networks that have their own content moderation rules, but they can talk to each other. So mm -hmm. a post from your friend who's over in, you know, the Disney rules node can still reach you in your Playboy rules node and, you know, vice versa, unless your, your post violates the Disney rules, you know, so, something like that. I think what Francis describes and what sounds more frankly, just politically viable or to me is something that's a little bit more of a hub and spoke model to say, you don't get rid of Facebook. Like Facebook still sits there or YouTube or Twitter, you know, they still sit there and they still have this like dragon's horde of user content and data, but, and they take out the things that are illegal if they know about them, you know, they take down uh, movie piracy or child abuse material, you know, but then whatever's left, all the stuff that is legal becomes available to farm out to to the nodes to rank or do content moderation or or whatever in a, according to whatever rules they want to apply and then as a user you know you can say i want i want this like black lives matter um, affiliated groups version of twitter or i want a version of twitter where harassment of female journalists is absolutely not tolerated or I want the, the ESPN version of YouTube, you know, et, et cetera. So you get more, more options. The downsides, so the, the thing that I've written about in a response piece I did to Francis in the, the Journal of Democracy, there are a bunch of practical problems. The biggest one has to do with privacy. If Facebook is sharing all of your friends' posts with some fly-by-night content moderation outfit that you signed up for <laughs> so that that new out the new you know middleware provider can rank the posts according to the preferences that that you've expressed well that's almost exactly what happened with cambridge analytica <laughs> you know that right. means your friends who did not consent to share their baby pictures or their wedding news or you know whatever their political opinions with this third-party company are getting their posts shared with that company uh, you know, without their consent. That's that's the biggest problem. Okay, so Facebook would be required to make its user-generated content available to a range of service providers, would then use it to create and curate a number of different feeds. What does the business model for this look like? How would middleware providers make money? Uh, no one knows. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in, in my Journal of Democracy piece, I identified for four practical problems. One is the privacy problem. And then one is, does the technology even work? Like, can, mm. this is why I refer to this as magic APIs when I was first writing <laughs> about it four or five years ago. Like, is there such a thing as an API that lets a third party search across Google's whole web search corpus instantaneously, or, you know, do right. the equivalent pulling data from YouTube or, or Facebook? That, that sounds hard. Um, but that's not my bailiwick, so I'll <laughs> set that aside and assume someone else is going to solve it. But then there are two <laughs> other problems that are basically economic qu questions. One is, how do these new competitors get paid? Do we completely redesign the ad tech world or the revenue division from ad tech so that the right amount of it flows to the right parties in this new ecosystem? Or do we at the same time as the massively ambitious restructuring to adopt middleware, also abandon ad revenue models and build a new revenue model. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> and what would that mean? Um, so, so there's there's that piece, and and that piece, I feel like if there were just more people in the public discussion who know a lot about how ads work, there might actually be reasonable solutions. But the people who know a lot about how ads work are off making money on ads for the most part. So, like we just don't get to hear <laughs> from them very often. Um, then the, the other economic question is. The, the, the first part is about how they make money. The middleware providers make money. The second is how, how do they afford to do the work that they're doing? Because if each and every provider is doing redundant work, looking at the same piece of content to assess it, that's very inefficient and, and very expensive. You know, e- even now, so many smaller platforms just don't have somebody who speaks Moroccan Arabic, or they don't have someone who speaks Chechen, or they don't have someone who can identify the significance of a, you know, a Kurdish uh, militant flag, or a finger gesture, or the significance of a pink shirt in Thailand, or a Hawaiian shirt in DC, you know, the, the, just number of humans with language or social expertise to recognize the meaning of a piece of content that you need for the whole universe of content in the world is massive. And there's right. no way that all of these different providers are going to be able to hire enough people to do all of that work. And so then the question is, is there some way to, for them to share information enough to reduce those costs, but not too much to the point where they're all replicating each other's judgments and you know effectively we've recreated this sort of speech monoculture that we have on platforms now and there too i think there's a there's a lot of thinking to be done like this is a technical question it's a it's a business and economic question there are smart people who could hammer on it and maybe come up with with smart answers but that part of the conversation isn't really happening much yet Okay, so let's imagine that a year from now, there is a range of middleware providers performing this function. We figured out how to make the business model work. We figured out how to make content moderation work. We sorted out the privacy issues. What problems might it make worse? For example, if everyone picks their own feed, aren't we at risk of making the problem of echo chambers worse? The fear, um, if this you know middleware universe comes to pass is that some people will choose, maybe a lot of people will opt into the all lies all the time channel or the all hate speech all the time channel. And that is not an unfounded fear. Right. Uh, As a first amendment matter, of course, there might not be very much you can do about that. I mean, people opt into all lies all the time channel on existing media. This is not unique to, not unique to social media. And unless what's going on is actually illegal and it takes a lot to violate the law and under the first amendment, you know, you, you can't use the force of law to prevent people from choosing that kind of content. As a sort of deeper, more almost like a Weberian question, or I don't know, maybe it's a John Stuart Mill question. I think that there's a pretty deep question about how scared you are of concentrations of power over speech and discourse. I fall on the side of being pretty scared of those concentrations of power. You know, if you have a small number of companies that really do have a chokehold on so much of human communication, that is, as as Francis Fukuyama says in, in 
his middleware article, that's a loaded gun. You know, that is at such risk either of a platform choosing to abuse that power later, whether or not they're doing it now, it's it's so tempting for somebody to do it eventually, or platforms being um, vulnerable to pressure from governments, you know, a government that controls access to a lucrative market and says, yes, come into my country and make money. I just need you to take down this one little thing globally or hand over mm-hmm. data about this one user or, you know, it, it's not just platform power we should worry about. It's the fact that platforms power can be used by other parties in ways that we don't even see. So I, I'm sufficiently scared about abuses of that kind of concentrated power that you know, I would opt for door number two, <laughs> breaking, diversifying that power, having more and smaller discursive communities, even knowing that some of them may become really ugly. But, but it, you know, it's a deep and difficult question and I really understand how people wind up on the other side. One thing this conversation has made clear is that when it comes to quote, fixing social media, it's trade-offs all the way down. If you could go back in time then to the beginning of social media, what moment in time would you return to and what would you change? Hmm, that's a hard one. I think there are some acquisitions that uh-huh. perhaps <laughs> <laughs> it would be better if they had not happened. Um, you know, that people are looking at whether it's possible to somehow unwind Facebook's acquisition of WhatsApp, for example, um, <clears throat> you know, things that just preserved more diversity in the platform landscape, uh, I think would would have, have left us in, in a better place now. I think in my own history of thinking and working on these things, you know, I and a lot of the lawyers and legal scholars of my generation were very focused on copyright because so many of the legal fights of the 90s about the internet and the sort of fights for civil liberties and for you know sort of freedoms of internet rights and freedoms of internet users were oriented around copyright mm. and i think that copyright is a really odd model to start from because it's an area of law that's grounded in the idea that more information is always better, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, the purpose of copyright under the intellectual property clause of the constitution is to promote the progress of science and useful arts. And the idea is that by giving authors copyrights, you will incentivize creation and also by having term limits to copyrights and having exceptions for fair use and things like that, you will leave room for as much possible additional creation that builds on top of it. But but at every step of the process, you're kind of trying to get more information. And if, if that's your starting point, then these areas like disinformation and harassment and defamation, you know, the, these areas where more information is not a good thing, are less evident, you know, you, you, mm. you don't focus on that as, as much. And so I, I think it has been an important corrective 
that more academics who do focus on informational harms have come to the fore over the past 10 years or so. I think we have now swung way too far in that direction. <laughs> you know, we managed to have entire congressional hearings where that's the only perspective being aired. But maybe if in the 90s, the people who were thinking about copyright had also been thinking more about these other informational challenges, uh, maybe we would have come up with smarter ideas then. Was there anything I didn't give you the space to share that I should have? I guess the, the one thing I would come back to is just how big a deal the First Amendment is for this discussion. Because there's so much harmful, offensive, just bad, morally, ethically bad um, online speech that Congress cannot prohibit. You know, the Supreme Court has said, you know, we don't prohibit hate speech in this country. They right. have upheld people's rights to tell lies, even damaging lies. Um, you know, it's not that every single thing is legal, um, you know, we have defamation laws, we have copyright laws, we have laws against material support of terrorism, et cetera. But so many th things that we classify as, you know, disinformation, electoral disinformation, COVID disinformation, et cetera. So much of that stuff is legal that I think we easily go down the wrong path if we start thinking, oh, Congress can just pass a law to get rid of that stuff because they, they can't. They can pass a law to get rid of the subset of it that's that's actually illegal and like maybe the supreme court eventually could be convinced to reinterpret the first amendment in order to you know reach prohibitions on more speech but that's not where we are now and so you know especially for lawmakers when they decide what to invest their political capital in and what laws to spend time trying to pass they should have a really concrete estimate of like, what are the odds of a law like this getting struck down and then, you know, place their bets accordingly. We, we will all waste our time if we um, invent or fight over or whatever laws that aren't going to survive judicial review or that have a low probability. Okay, let's end on a personal note. What's bringing you joy these days? Oh gosh. Uh, my kids, my kids are awesome. My 13 year old uh, spends a lot of their time making up characters and um, histories of characters for fictional universes. And they're always it. wildly creative and weird. My son will not stop talking about airships and will correct you if you refer to, say, a hot air balloon as an airship, because it isn't. <laughs> it has something to do with whether it has a rigid external frame, as I recall. So yeah, my, my kids bring me a lot of joy. And last, if you could tell your teenage self one thing about life, what would it be? I don't know. Don't be so judgy. <laughs> <laughs> Teenagers are super judgy. I'm not sure I would have convinced myself, but... Uh you know, make room to be nicer to people and tolerant of uh, things you might be tempted to judge. Well, Daphne Keller, thank you so much for coming on Untangled. 
Thank you so much for having me.